Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This, of course, is today. And I'm Kino Cummings with you all the way through until midday. And, of course, we've got Dr. Friday, a.k.a. the Naked Scientist, Dr. Chris Smith. Good morning. Morning, Kino. How are you doing? Very, very good indeed, Chris. Now, I normally ask you about what you've been up to, but if Zuki were in a Western, we'd both be shot in the kneecaps because she was quick on the draw. Uh, hello, Zuki. Good morning. Dr. Chris Hi. Smith can hear you. Hi, Kina. Hi, Chris. How are you? Hi, Zuki. Yeah, I'm good. Do you know, look, um, I was all ready to do my homework, right? And, and, and you, you got, got in there before I even had to hand it in. So let me just very briefly hand in my homework. Because if you remember last week, I said I was going to check out what happens if you mix brake fluid from the yes. car with yes. pool chlorine. And I said, I want to check this out because I'm not, I've not heard of this. Um, it, it is apparently quite well documented that you can do this reaction. The basis for this is brake fluid contains polyethylene glycol. As I speculated, this is a carbon source. It's a fuel. And if you mix it with calcium hypochlorite, which is granules that you can add to your pool to chlorinate the pool, calcium hypochlorite is a solid and very stable, so you have a higher level of available chlorine, and chlorine is an oxidising agent. So if you mix the two together, you should never do this at home. It's dangerous. Do this only in a safe environment when someone who knows what they're doing is demonstrating this, but it is a nice, elegant example of an oxidation-reduction reaction. Basically, the chlorine that's in the calcium hypochlorite granules will oxidise and therefore uh, burn off the carbon source in the polyethylene glycol in the brake fluid and you'll create an explosion. And of course it's an important week when we're considering explosions because of all the headlines coming out of of Beirut and this shows us what can happen when an unstable material produces a very large amount of gas because what happened there, that was an ammonium nitrate deposit There was a lot of ammonium nitrate being stored in that building. And ammonium nitrate, when it gets very hot, it does what's called decompose because the molecule is quite uh, unstable and it would like to fall apart into its component parts, which themselves are all gases. So when ammonium nitrate, which has the formula NH4NO3, that's the ammonium and the nitrate stuck together, when this falls to pieces, it produces two molecules of nitrogen, a molecule of oxygen, and four molecules of water. These are all gases, and gases take up a thousand times more volume than the equivalent liquids, and many, many times greater volumes than the solid that they came from. So if you've got something that's already filling a building when it's a solid, and it turns into a gas, it's going to take up thousands of times more space than the uh, building has to accommodate it, and therefore either the building gets thousands of times bigger, or, as we saw happened, the building falls apart, and that's basically how an explosive works. But anyway, I just wanted to make sure we, we didn't uh, neglect to answer that and also talk about that very important news story this week. So, Zuki, I'm very sorry to hijack your your question, and, and I hope you enjoyed no that apologies. answer as well. <laughs> no apologies needed. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that uh, Zuki quite enjoyed that answer. And how's your dad's G-Class doing, by the way? Is, it, is he still parking okay? <laughs> Actually, that's 
such a good memory. Yes, it's fine. <laughs> okay, Zuki, we're, we're, we're ready to we await your question. Okay, so I've been watching a lot of, you know, these videos of babies eating lemons for the very first time. Yeah. So I, I, I was wondering, what is it about the sour taste in a lemon that seems to have the same involuntary um, action on faces? Like, it, it seems that the same muscles in different people's faces pull the same way. Does <laughs> Dr. Chris know? Yeah, so miserable people. who We, we often describe miserable people as people look, looking like they have a face as though they're sucking on a piece of lemon. And, and we all kind of know that very restricted, kind of constricted grimace that some people pull when they're just miserable people. Uh, the answer is, of course, that when you put things in your mouth, we have a choice about whether or not to swallow them. And uh, if, if we swallow them, then we've potentially poisoned ourselves. So we all have reflexes that mean that when unpleasant things, strongly flavoured things tend to be unpleasant things, the kinds of chemicals that can harm you in nature, chemicals in plants called plant alkaloids, they're all sour tasting, like a lemon. And so as a result, you have a reflex where when you detect these sorts of flavours at high concentrations, they cause you to react in such a way that you could if you wanted to then expel the contents of your mouth and go and spit them out and a little bit of some of those flavors we find agreeable coffee for example contains a lot of plant alkaloids that's why they are bitter and coffee has a bitter flavor caffeine is a plant alkaloid it has a bitter flavor a little bit we like too much we don't like so I think that's the reason that you have this nerve reflex which is there to help to protect you but because we can as humans make a choice about having a little bit rather than a lot then it partly engages the kind of oh my goodness type reaction but not to the extent that we actually are then compelled to eject this stuff from our mouths. Babies on the other hand do because if you watch a baby and you put something in its mouth that it really doesn't like it will make the same grimace that we do but then it will follow through and go Bleh! and chuck it out. And I actually did the experiment on my daughter in a slightly different way when she was little. Uh, it's nice being in my household. Uh, I'd bought a, a Thai curry home, and, and she was about one and a half, I think, two. And, and she wanted some, so I just I had quite a hot Thai curry, so I just gave her a bit. And, and it, it, it elicited the kind of, I'm going to expel the contents of my mouth reaction. Uh, and it caused a lot of foaming, but then she was saying dot, 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 meaning hot. And I thought it was really interesting. The food wasn't that hot, but the, it was spicy. And, and even though we'd never taught her that you refer to a spicy flavour as hot, she nevertheless made that interpretation and made that sort of leap. And this is because chilli activates the same class of nerve fibres in the mouth that heat does. So it fools your mouth into thinking it's a lot hotter than it is. So it fools your nervous system into thinking you're being burned and you get a similar reaction from that too. So I hope that answers the question, Zuki. Zuki, wonderful question. There we go. Thank you so much. Don't eat any lemons, okay? <laughs> well, no, do <laughs> eat lemons. Do eat lemons, but just not too many lemons. <laughs> not too many lemons, absolutely. Uh, let's go to Gary and Franchuk. Hi, Gary. Good morning. Hi, morning, Kenneth. You mentioned Bly earlier on. I just want to know something. I was Blying the other day. Why does Bly fire follow you wherever you go? <laughs> That's a good question. Oh, yeah, the, the smoke just follows you around, doesn't it? And um, I, I was talking to someone about this the other day because actually we, we made an episode of The Naked Scientist where we did the science of the barbecue. 
And one of the things we did, we actually made a cake on the barbecue. Someone challenged us to make something extraordinary. And so we said, well, what could we make that's really weird that you would never normally barbecue? And we made a cake. And actually, the way we did it was to get a tin of pineapple and invite over a top chef from a local restaurant. That helps. That's critical as an ingredient. You open the tin of pineapples. You get rid of most of the pineapple circles. You put those in a bowl and eat those in the juice. But you leave one in the bottom, add a little bit of syrup to that, put a cherry in the hole in the middle of the pineapple, make a a sponge mix, so flour, eggs, sugar, fat, and then spoon that into the tin up to about the level of the top of the tin, chuck it on your barbecue and shut the lid, 200 degrees C, 15 minutes, the most amazing cake. So we did it, and it was terrific. But while we were doing all this, and this is what I'm telling this yarn, uh, while we were doing all of this, um, the smoke was following us all around the garden. And you imagine you're trying to do a radio program with a microphone in your hand and and, and a a, a spatula in the other hand. Very difficult when you can't see what you're doing. And the speculation we had was that uh, normally, obviously if the smoke's coming from, um, from... directly behind the barbecue and blowing towards you there's not a lot you can do about that but if you stand right next to the barbecue you are creating a wind shadow behind you so the wind hits you is deflected around you and that means there's a higher pressure behind you and a lower pressure in front of you and a a higher pressure around the barbecue so in the same way that when a car goes down the road and leaves a void behind the car and dirt dust smoke whatever is drawn in behind the car to an extent, that shadow behind you, the wind shadow behind you, is going to be at a lower pressure and pull some of the smoke in. So smoke is going to be pushed into that space, which is, of course, where your face is. So to an extent, it is true that smoke will follow you around your bry or your fire because you're creating a, a, a small uh, pressure void in front of you where your face is because the wind's coming from behind you. If the wind's coming straight towards you, though, not much you can do about that. Uh, Gary, what we're going to do, we're going to have to send you this answer as well, so that the next okay. time, next time you're around the bry, yeah, you must explain it the way Chris just did. Yeah, you are going to be the yeah. talk of the town. I promise you. Yeah. So thank you for the question. <laughs> okay, cool, wonderful, Cheers, brilliant. Eh? Let's go to uh, Quentin. Quentin in Somerset West. Hi, Quentin. Good morning. Hi there. How are you? Good man. Good. Good. Talk to Lovely. us. Mm-hmm. All right. So my question is about intelligence. So what I wanted to know is what, how much of a part does genetics play versus uh-huh. like nurturing and uh, what you learn and how you learn? Hello, Quentin. Well, uh, we, we know that obviously the environment in which you are reared plays a massive role. But at the same time, it's not the be all and end all. And therefore, there must be an element of developmental biology that sets up the the blank canvas onto which your education and your life's experience can be painted. Now, the evidence for this is, and it all comes down to how you test intelligence, because if you were to, say, go back 40,000 years to some of the first people who lived in, say, Australia, the indigenous Aborigines who came to Australia they have survived for 40,000 years in some of the harshest environments on the planet. These people know how to find their way around, find food, find water, and navigate terrain that will kill the average person in under a day. And these people thrived there. Now, clearly, they have enormous intelligence to do that. But if you ask them, those people 40,000 years ago, to do an IQ test, 
they wouldn't even know what the pencil was that you were handing them to answer the questions with. That doesn't mean they're not intelligent. It just means they haven't had the benefit of an education that we're familiar with. So one has to be very cautious how you call or call out or measure intelligence. So what we think is that there is an underlying developmental process that patterns your brain and gives you the potential to learn and to learn skills and have intelligence. And people think about 50% of your intelligence is based on your development. So in other words, your genes drive 50% of your intelligence potential. But the other 50% of how you perform and how you uh, actually can be educated and get educated, etc., is down to your nurture your upbringing, the educational experiences you get and especially experiences you get when you're young because your brain is most plastic and mouldable when you're smallest and it gets more rigid and fixed in its thinking, unfortunately for me, the older we get. And me as well. Uh, let's move on. Quentin, thanks for that question. Ash is in Durbanville. Hi, Ash. Good morning. How are you? Very good, sir. I'm fine. Uh, I've got a question for the, uh, for the scientists. Um, I, I, I came across some uh, some experiments on the internet where um, some scientists put um, a center zero galvanometer with two legs on a lemon. So the galvanometer slightly deflects to one side, showing that a lemon can actually generate um, electric current. Uh, so what what is the what is the average um, amount of current generated by by a lemon in milliamps, if possible? Is that been, <laughs> is that been <laughs> Right. Okay. Now we have done the experiment. Uh, we did this uh, on The Naked Scientist again a few years ago now, but we wanted to see if we could charge up a mobile phone with a fruit battery. And we actually did it live on the radio. And so we, we actually got, in the end, we ended up with 30 pieces of fruit. And we had copper nails and zinc nails stuck into apples, oranges, lemons, pineapple even. <laughs> and by connecting them all in series, we eventually achieved 5 volts because we wanted a charging current of a uh, charging voltage of 5 volts. And the phone did begin to charge, but when we actually tested the flowing current, it was about 3 milliamps. So not very high. Uh the so if you've got a circuit that uses a very tiny amount of current, then a fruit battery will work. A, a thing like a digital clock, for example, there are some gimmicky things you can buy where you shove a lemon in a box and you put a, a strip of copper and a strip of zinc into the lemon and this will generate a sufficient current to run a very, very low current circuit board with, say, a digital clock and an LCD display. And you can do that. But when you want something that's more energy hungry, I was going to say uses a lot of juice, but that would be a bad pun, then... Uh, <laughs> sorry, then as a result, the, the fruit battery is just not going to cut it. The chemistry of this is that uh, within, it's just like any battery or any cell, when you have two different metals, they have different reactivities. And if you put together two things with two different reactivities, one wants to give away its electrons more than the other one. And so you end up with a, a, a disequilibrium, as it were, where the more reactive metal, metal gives off electrons and they are picked up by the other metal. And all that the fruit does is to provide a convenient elect uh, electrolyte material through which the ions, the, the particles that have surrendered electrons from one of the metals, can move to the other to complete the circuit. So you, you could actually do this with a solution of vinegar or uh, citric acid or the juice of the lemon or the orange to avoid wasting the fruit because the fruit is actually inconsequential. It is behaving as an electrolyte between two metals of different reactivities and copper and zinc is a good pair because it produces a reasonable voltage. 
Fabulous question, fabulous answer. Thank you so much for that, Ash. We are chatting to Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. Here's a question. I dream in Technicolor. And then why do some people not remember their dreams? That seems a bit like a two-part question. Mm. Everyone dreams in colour unless they have some kind of underlying problem with their nervous system that means they could not see colour. And the exception to that is people who are born blind. If you've been blind since birth, people still dream. And in fact, I had a very good friend who's unfortunately died now. But uh, I asked him this very question because he had been blind since he was born. And he said he dreams just sounds and words rather than seeing pictures. But his friends who went blind later in life would dream in full colour again and he said they loved going to sleep because you can see again that was his way of putting it which I thought was a wonderful way of putting it oh, wow. and he said they actually relished those opportunities because it would remind them what colours were like because when you've lost your sight you have to work wow. very hard to make sure you can still remember what things look like and the vibrancy of colours and when you go to sleep your brain recreates all of the circuits that you used to use to decode what you were looking at when you could see and as a result they are presented back to your dreaming consciousness as it were and you can see again for a bit so um the that the that that's why it's normal to see in technicolor what was the other half of the question um why do some people not remember their dreams well most people remember some parts of their dreams most people forget most of their dreams and the reason for this is as you go through the night your brain doesn't dream all the time continuously your your brain goes through a series of stages of sleep where it alternates between times when you are very deeply asleep and times when your brain is extremely active and you're in a phase called REM which is rapid eye movement and this is when people are dreaming and the period of rapid eye movement sleep becomes more frequent and longer the the further you go through the night so you tend to have the richest dreams and the longest most detailed dreams towards the end of the sleep cycle just before you wake up and if you wake people up when they're mid-dream they are more likely to be able to recall what they were dreaming about and for it to make sense and be more memorable because that's when they were dreaming and you have a higher likelihood of waking someone up when they're having a rich dream towards the end of the day uh, the, the night as they as they're getting up to getting towards waking up so most of the time if you wake up and you are not dreaming when you wake up you'll have forgotten everything that's gone before because there's no mechanism for wanting to to remember dreams but if you wake up mid-dream you're having a very rich and detailed dream it makes a real impression on you you might spend a bit of time reflecting on that when you first wake up and that does help to translate those dream messages into long-term memory because it made an impression on you or made you feel good or, or in some horrible cases frightened you of course because not all dreams are nice ones yeah. so that that's the reason it's, it's whether we choose to process that information in a way that can translate it into long-term memory or not and when you're asleep you can't make that choice but when you've just woken up and just been having a very vivid dream you can and so some fragments of those dreams do get stored i remember dreams i had when i was 12 years old but anyway it was very, very vivid. Uh, let's go to NASA. NASA's in Bloberg. Hello, NASA. Hi, Kino. Hi, Dr. Smith. Very quick question for you about height. In, in So I have two children. My daughter is 13. She's a bit taller than my son, who's 16. Same parents, same genes. How does that happen that one child remains shorter than the other? Thank you. Good question. Uh, yeah, well, height is genetically determined. And uh, this is what's called a continuous variation or continuous variable. And it's, it, it is not that there is one single gene that makes you your height. 
Height is the product of a range of factors, including a whole constellation of genes and the environment you grow up in. So you've got to bring all these things into the equation when considering how tall someone's going to be. Now, gender does make a difference. Men, on average, but not exclusively, are often taller than women. Also, how well fed you've been, if you've been unwell. And remember that when you've got two parents and they mix up their genes to make a child... Although the two children will share 50% of their genes with each other and 50% of their genes with each of their parents, the combination of genes in each is completely unique. And therefore, there will be genes in one parent that make that parent a bit taller, other genes that make them a bit smaller. And if you happen to hand to one of your children a bigger proportion of genes that are the smaller genes, you'll have a smaller child. If you hand to them a bigger proportion of your bigger genes, then they have a higher likelihood of getting taller overall but this is random and there's enormous variation and the numbers of genes is enormous so it's although it's it it can be predicted a bit based on parental height it is not exclusively the driver and for that reason you're going to expect to see uh, cases where you get one child taller than the other and it might be that the the lady is taller than the man chris as always great having you on the show sir and you must have a phenomenal weekend i'm gonna try and you and, uh, and obviously, if you go and have gonna... a braai, stay out the smoke. Yeah, well, but no, no, actually, I'm going to stay in the smoke so I can explain to everybody how. And, and you can do the experiment and make a cake. Have a go at making one of our, our wonderful pineapple upside down <laughs> cakes and see what, you, see what you make of it. Oh, I absolutely love it. You are just amazing. Uh, but listen, don't try and have a good weekend. Have a good weekend. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.